Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, we are again uh, looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through uh, 24. Uh, at one time, I, I had the, uh, the uh, desire to preach through all of 1 John in one sermon, uh, knowing me that uh, was never going to happen. Uh, and so we come this morning again looking at 1 John chapter 3, but really taking the whole book as our text. Uh, this morning as we continue to, to ponder this question of assurance. How do we know uh, that the faith by which we have received all the blessings of Christ, how do we know that that is a sincere faith? How do we know that that is a, a living faith? How can we test ourselves to, to strengthen our assurance? That's the question that is before us this morning. And we'll be looking at uh, the book of First John again this morning uh, as we seek to hear the answer that he gives to that very question. But before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's word, let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning humbly asking uh, that you would remember your promise, that your word never returns to you void, but it always accomplishes your purpose. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would attend the ministry of the word here this morning. Uh, that he would go with it and make it powerful, that he would uh, make it effective in the lives of those who are gathered here this morning, those who have never uh, believed on your Son. Father, may they be granted uh, repentance unto life. And those, Father, who have known him and are following, may they be strengthened to walk in him in a manner worthy of his name, to bring forth the fruits of righteousness, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his name's sake, amen. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. This is the very Word of God. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Children, you can come forward to meet me at the front. All right, yeah, come on up. All right, how many of you have chores that you're supposed to do at home? You guys have chores? Little things that your parents ask you to do? Do your parents ever ask you to, to pick up your room or maybe to, to pick up your toys out of the living room or to clean the bathroom, anything like that? You, got, you guys have, have chores that you have to do. Wow, I have to clean up your room and the living room. That's a, that's a lot. That's right. So, so you, you know what it is to be asked to kind of help around the house. Well, uh, when I was your age and my parents would ask me to, to do chores around the house, I I always had a question that I wanted to ask. You know, when I had to clean up the living room or when I had to clean the bathroom or clean the kitchen, I I wanted to know, is it supposed to be dad clean or is it supposed to be mom clean? Now, you know, you may not know what that means, but, but, you know, 
if, you're, if your dad is going to be looking at what's cleaned up right, it might be a little bit different than if your mom is looking. Because if it has to be mom clean, well, that's a lot more work. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had to do that? Yeah. And so if, if you have to get the bathroom mom clean, that's going to take a lot longer. And so I was always hoping that it was dad clean right? That, that dad was the one who was going to be looking at it because he would just sort of look her in the corner and say, oh yeah, yeah, there's nothing obviously on the floor. That's good. Go, right? Well, you know, and so I kind of want to know what's the minimum I have to do to not get in trouble? What's the minimum I have to do to be counted as obedient uh, to my parents of having done what they asked me to do? You guys ever, ever do that? You ever kind of want to know what's, okay, what, how, how much do I really have to do? Have you ever asked that question? You guys are too honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, so, um, but sometimes we do the same thing. Sometimes we do the same thing with God. You know, God calls on us to obey him, right? We, we heard that last Sunday, that, that if we believe in Jesus, then we will obey uh, Jesus. But sometimes our, our hearts want to know, well, what's the minimum I have to do? Like, like what's, one, what's something that Jesus asks you to do? Do you guys know? What, what's, what's something that you think of that, that Jesus wants you to do? What does it mean for you to obey Jesus? What do you think? Um, uh, like, obey his okay, oh, to obey him, right? Can you think of any of his commandments? What, what commandments can you think of? Does he ask you to, to share, maybe? Does he ask you to share? What do you think? Okay, honor your parents. That's right. Honor your parents. And, and if your parents tell you to, to share your toys, uh, do you want to know, well, well, how many toys do I have to share? Right? And, and if they ask you to pick up your room, you're like, well, does that mean the stuff under the bed too? You know, you, you ask those kind of questions. You want to know what's the minimum that I have to do? And, and sometimes uh, we, we just want to know, all right, not, well, what, what would please... What do they really want me to do? But what's the least I have to do in order to not get in trouble? And we do that with God. And we say, um, well, what's the least I have to do? And what I, what I want you to hear John saying this morning in that passage that I read is that John doesn't want you to be interested in the minimum, in the, the least that you can do you know, to be counted as obedient. He says, yes, if we, lo- if we have faith in Jesus, then we're going to obey him. But we're not just going to obey him. We're going to obey him as an expression of love. And so when we obey, it's going to be a loving obedience. It's going to be obedience that wants to know not just what's the minimum I have to do, but, but what's good? What's, what's going to be a blessing to my neighbor? What's going to really make them happy? How, am, how can I please? How can I really help? And so when we think about obedience, I don't want you to think about, well, what's the least I have to do? I want you to think of how is this going to be good? How is this going to be a blessing? Yes, you have a question? Um, you don't have to ask the question. Well, um, even if you really wanted to ask the question, like, don't, don't ask the question for another reason. Like, you, if, if it just had to be dad clean, sure. But if your dad was still going to check it and it was mom clean, he might thank. Oh, that's true. That, that's very true. If you, could, if you just went above and beyond, right? And do you know what? Sometimes uh, we, we don't want to do that um, because we're sinners, right? 
But do you know that God has given you the Holy Spirit? John says that you've been given the Holy Spirit, that Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit. And if you ask him, he can help you to want to obey, not to the minimum, but to the fullest. Because he is creating in you a new heart. And because he is teaching us to to love him and to love one another more and more and more, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you guys believe that? Amen. All right, you guys can go sit back down. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to uh, 1 John uh, chapter 3. As I said, this is uh, the continuation of uh, our uh, exploration in the book of John. And that exploration is actually part of a larger series uh, that we began some months ago on the doctrine of salvation. Uh, You may remember that we began with our need of salvation. Why is it that we need to be saved in the first place? And we saw that our our need is, is rooted in our sin. We are sinners, even as we have confessed in this service. We are rebels against our king. And so we need salvation because we are justly deserving of God's wrath and condemnation. Next, we looked at the, the work of the, the Savior, the one whom, whom God sent in order to redeem us. And we saw that he redeems us by, by coming in the flesh as our perfect prophet, priest, and king to give his life as the ransom for ours. And then we spent some time looking at all the benefits that we receive through his life, death, and resurrection. The the benefits of of justification and adoption and, and sanctification and of perseverance therein to the end. And now, most recently, we have taken up the question of of how we actually receive those benefits. We we know why we need salvation. We know what Jesus has done to secure salvation. We know the, the benefits that are available through him. And now we've asked, how do we receive those benefits? And our catechism puts it this way. Our, our catechism says that in order to escape the wrath and the curse that are due to us for sin, God requires of us, first, faith in Jesus Christ and repentance unto life and the diligent use of all the outward means whereby he communicates to us the benefits of redemption. So in order to receive those benefits, in order to receive our, our justification and our adoption and our, and our sanctification, in order to receive everything that Christ has secured for us as our perfect prophet, priest, and king, we must repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And we must nurture that faith through the regular and ordinary use of the means of grace that he has Provided. This is the very heart of the gospel. This is, this is why we call it good news. It is, it is good news because our salvation has been accomplished by another and has been offered to us as a free gift received by faith alone. But even this good news can raise a question in our hearts. A question that that I suspect many of us, if not all of us, have have wrestled with at one time or another. It's that that question of assurance. How can we know that our faith is real? How can we know that our, our repentance is sincere? How can we know that we have a true saving faith and not the vain faith or the the false faith that we sometimes read about in the New Testament. It's a, it's a question that, that most believers struggle with at one point or another. 
And we have spent the last two Sundays looking at John's uh, first letter because John wrote this letter for the very purpose of addressing that question. Turn with me uh, to the end of 1 John, to, to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Notice what he writes. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so again, we, as we've seen the last few weeks, John is writing to those who profess faith. These are, these are professing Christians, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll, you'll remember he wrote his gospel so that they would know that Jesus was the Christ. He's now writing to those who have received the message of that gospel and have believed on Jesus Christ, and he's writing to them who believe that they may know that they have eternal life. He, he's writing to undergird and to, to strengthen their assurance of their own salvation. And to that end, John gives his readers three tests, tests whereby they may determine the, the authenticity of their faith. We, we see them together in the verses that I read. Look again at chapter 3, verse 23. Notice what John writes there. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So I said, we we see all three tests woven together. The first test is the test of, of belief. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe that he is the Son of God come in the flesh as the Christ? Do we believe that he has come as the long-promised saviors to to redeem us from the wrath and the curse that are due to us for our sin? Is that the substance of our faith? Do we believe that Jesus, the, the man Jesus, is the Christ? But of course, there's a second test. The, the second test is the test of obedience. Has our belief in Jesus as the Christ produced in us and in our lives obedience to his commands? Do we now walk uh, in submission to him as our rightful Lord? But there's a third test, and that is the test of love. Is our obedience to Jesus' commands an obedience that is marked by a sincere and genuine love for our brothers and sisters? As I said, we've looked at the first two of these tests, the the test of of faith and the test of obedience. And this morning, we are taking up the third test, this test of love. Is our obedience marked by by a sincere and earnest love for our brothers and our, and our sisters and our neighbors in the community. This is the task that John wants us to apply to ourselves this morning because just as obedience was the proof of our faith, so love is the proof of our obedience. We, we see this throughout the letter. Turn with me to chapter 2. In chapter 2, beginning at verse 7, John writes, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. He says, so I'm not not giving you something novel here. I'm not giving you you something new here. I, I am simply repeating what you have heard from the beginning, that you are to love one another. 
But, he says, verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He said, it's not a new commandment, but it is a, a new commandment, because it now has a new vitality. It has, now has a new glory uh, in the fact that we have seen the love that we are called to on full display in the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he says in verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Here's the test. Here's the test. Is your obedience marked by love? This is the commandment, that you love your brother. If you say that you love your brother, uh, but uh, if you um, say that you obey Jesus, but do not love your brother, then you are actually still walking in darkness. He says something similar in chapter 3. Turn there with me. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. Again, notice what he writes. He says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his his brother. You remember the story of of Adam and Eve's first uh, children, Cain killing his brother because of of envy, that, that God had received Abel's sacrifice and not his own. He says, do not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So again, love, love for your brother, an earnest and sincere love is the test of your obedience, which is the proof of your faith. And then finally, one more text. Just look with me in chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Again, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And so again and again and again throughout this letter, John is making it clear that the obedience that is the the result of faith is an obedience that is to be marked by a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is the test of obedience, even as obedience is is the test of faith. And the reason that John feels compelled to give us this this third test is because it is possible to obey in a sense without love. Just as it's possible to profess faith without faith, it's actually even possible to obey, at least in a sense, 
in a way that's, that's not true obedience. It's possible to obey without love. And, and think about what Paul says about such obedience in 1 Corinthians 13. We're, we're familiar with, with 1 Corinthians 13. It's the, it's the place where Paul gives us his most extended discussion of, of Christian love, the love that is to be the, the mark of our obedience. And there he speaks of someone who can give away all that he possesses and even give his body to the flames. That, that, that is a, a level of sacrifice that some of us even find hard to comprehend. And yet here is, is someone who is walking in obedience but without love. And he says, such obedience, even though it is sacrificial, even though it is externally impressive, it is not the obedience that God delights in. It is not the obedience that God calls for. There is a possibility of obedience without love, and such obedience is not true obedience. We see this clearly in the example of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, this is the the final week of of Jesus' public ministry before his his crucifixion. And he is uh, in uh, heated debate with the Pharisees. And you'll see that he is actually pronouncing woes upon the, the scribes and the Pharisees. He is, he is warning them with the, the most sober of, of warnings. And he says to them there in verse 23 of chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's a, it's a picture that we're familiar with from the, from the New Testament. The, you know, the, this picture of the Pharisees as Hypocrites, but, but notice uh, exactly what Jesus is pointing out in their lives. He, he says that, that in some sense they are obedient. In fact, he, he began this chapter, chapter 23, by, by saying to his own disciples, he says, listen, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. So long as they're teaching Moses, listen to them. They're, they're telling you what, what God actually has said. They're, they're telling you what God has required. He says, but don't follow their example. Because the way that they follow Moses is not the way that God delights in. They are hypocrites. And, and specifically, he says, they, they tithe... They, they tithe their herb garden. They, they tithe the, the mint and the, uh, the, the cumin. They, 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 they tie those, uh, those herbs that are growing on their windowsill. They, if, if they get ten leaves, they, they take one into the church. They are scrupulous in their, their tithing, and yet they are ignoring what Jesus refers to here as the weightier matters of the law. They're scrupulous about their tithing, but they ignore justice and mercy and faithfulness. Think about what that means. Think about what those those terms mean. What is it that they are ignoring? 
What, is, what are justice and, and mercy and, and faithfulness? Well, we could spend a long time on unpacking that question, but what I want you to notice this morning is that each of these, each of these weightier matters has to do with love for neighbor. It has to do with the way that you relate to your, your brothers and your, your sisters. Justice is a concern to do right by your neighbor. To do justice is to do right. And and why do we do right? We we do right so that we do not violate the interests of our neighbors in order to advance our own. That's that's where injustice enters into our lives. We we can sometimes think of injustice at sort of a a much higher level when the the government is doing injustice or when corporations are, are doing injustice. But there's a, an uh, interpersonal justice that, that God is concerned about where we do right by one another. Have you ever been in a situation uh, where you needed to, to violate your neighbor's rights in order to protect your own interests? Where you needed to do something that was maybe not entirely righteous. Maybe you needed to, to shade the truth in order to, to protect your interests against the interest of your, your neighbor. You, you need to tonight not quite tell it the way that it was, or not quite the way that it, that it happened. Jesus is saying that the weightier, one of the weightier matters of the law is justice. It's, it's doing right by your neighbor, even contrary to your own interests. You, you never violate uh, the, the, your neighbor's right in order to protect your Self, or in order to, to advance your own cause. That's doing justice. But there's also mercy here. And mercy is the, is the desire to protect and advance your neighbor's good even beyond the requirements of justice. Maybe you're not strictly required to do something that would, would be a blessing to your neighbor or to pr- protect your neighbor. But when you see the opportunity, you want to because you delight in mercy. You delight in, in doing what is right. I, I see uh, my, my wife doing this all the time, going above and beyond. Just, just this week, uh, a friend called her up and, and she was quick to go and to, to, to stand alongside and to uh, be with someone in a, in a difficult situation. There was, there was no requirement of justice there. But mercy flowed from her heart, a love for her neighbor that moved her to to go above and beyond the requirements of of justice. That's mercy. That's mercy. It's a a delight in your neighbor's good that that moves you to go beyond the minimum requirement of justice. And of course, faithfulness. Faithfulness is the commitment to do this over the long haul. It's the the commitment to to do justice and mercy, not just today and not just tomorrow, but ongoing. If you've ever been in a a situation where where mercy was required over the long haul, you know how we in our weakness can be worn down, how we can can get tired, how how we can say enough is enough. And Jesus says, no, no, the, the weightier matter of the law is not just to, to do mercy when you're fresh, but to do it when you're tired. These are the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And this, according to Jesus, is what true obedience is supposed to look like. Obedience 
is supposed to look like love. And without such love, obedience to the letter of the law is not sufficient. Again, let me be clear. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. This is not to say that obedience to the letter of the law is unimportant. That's that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus himself says to the Pharisees here in, in Matthew 23, he says they should have done the one without neglecting the other. He says, listen, you ought to have been tithing. That was the law. That was what God had required of his Old Testament people. And and so they were right to tithe. We can't pit obedience to the law against uh, love. We we can't pit obedience to the letter of the law against obedience to the the spirit of the law. They are not in conflict with with one another. Let me give you an an example. I once once had a husband who, who came to me, not a member of this church, but, but he came to me uh, seeking counsel because he was unhappy in his marriage. And he told me that, that he wanted to divorce his wife and try again. Because it just wasn't working. Now, if that man stood in my office, what was my call? Well, as his pastor, I had certain obligations. But just, just as his neighbor, I had an obligation to love him. I had an obligation to to love him well, but I could not love him. I could not show him mercy. I could not do him justice by giving him permission to break God's law. God's law shows us what love looks like. It shows us how love acts. And so so we can't pit the one against the other. We can't say, well, I know what it's like to to be in a a bad relationship. I know what it's like when when things are stressful at home and and, and I, I really love you and therefore I want to free you to go and pursue your your good elsewhere. We can't do that. But at the same time, I think we all know that it's possible to follow the law without love. I've seen this done as well. It it can be done, for example, when when a woman is is pregnant and and considering divorce. Or when a man is, is struggling with unwanted sexual uh, attraction. We can, we can merely tell the woman that she must keep her baby because abortion is murder and her murder is wrong. And that would be to speak the truth. But to merely say this would, would not be loving. It would not be true obedience. We must love this woman by coming alongside her with sympathy, understanding the, the challenges of her position and offering the support she needs to keep that baby and to raise them, uh, the baby well in the Lord. Somebody we can tell the man who is struggling with same-sex attraction that, that he must renounce his desires because those desires are, are sinful. And that would be true. But again, to merely say this would not be loving. Again, we must come alongside him. We must come alongside him with sympathy and support, helping him to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, helping him to renounce his sinful desires and providing him with the support and encouragement that he needs. And so we know, we, we know it, we've, we've seen it, we know that it's possible to apply the law to others without love. It's also possible to follow the law ourselves without love. We see this in James' letter. Think again what James says true religion is. True religion, according to James, is to keep yourself unstained from the world and visiting widows and orphans in their distress. 
It's so significant that he, that he weaves those two together. He, he's saying, yes, personal holiness is important. You need to obey the law. You need to keep yourself unstained from the world. And, and you need to visit widows and orphans in the, their distress. You, you need to love your brothers and sisters. You need to love your Neighbors, merely uh, keeping yourself unstained is not sufficient. The essence of our law-keeping must be more than than mere obedience. It it must be love. But why? Why is such love the necessary mark of the obedience produced by faith? Why is this what distinguishes the obedience that God delights in from, from an obedience that he hates? I think we can say that faith produces loving obedience uh, for two reasons. First, faith sets us free from a worry about our own good. Now, again, hear, hear what I'm saying. I, I don't, I'm not saying that, that faith sets us free from a concern for our own good. It has often been pointed out that, that, that Jesus' call to deny ourselves and follow him, that, that famous call that he makes there in, uh, in all of the Gospels, he says, if you would be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He, he's calling for the ultimate self-denial. The cross is an, an instrument of death. He's saying you must be willing to, to lose your life. But do you understand that that appeal to to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him is actually rooted in an appeal to your concern for your own well-being? He says, listen, you need to do this in order that you might find your life, in order that you might save your life. It is your concern for your life that motivates you to lose it. And so again, I'm not suggesting that, that faith frees us from a concern for our good, but what we need to see is that faith sets you free from worry about your good. You don't have to worry about your well-being if you are following Jesus. You don't have to worry about your good if he is your Lord and you are obeying him. Why? Because your good has been eternally secured. Your good is now unassailable. That's why Peter can say, who can harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Yes, they may cause you to suffer, but they cannot harm you because your good is eternally secured by the Almighty God. And if our good is eternally secure, then we are free to seek the good of others. What is it that causes us to to violate justice? What is it that causes us to set aside mercy? Is it not a concern for our own good? We we think our good is, is at threat if we seek the good of our neighbor. And the Scriptures remind us that that is never the case for those who are in Christ. You are free to pursue the good of the others. You are free even to lose your life in the pursuit of the good of others. Because your good is in his hands. And so when you believe on Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are set free from that worry about your own good that undermines uh, our, our attempts to do justice and to love mercy. 
But not only does, does faith produce in us this loving obedience by, by freeing us from a worry about our good, it, it also uh, produces loving obedience because it opens our eyes to the beauty and the goodness of such obedience. It's, it's not just that we're free to do it, it's that we actually desire to do it because we've seen that it is good. Faith shows us that when we give ourselves to to seeking and securing the good of others, we are actually working for our own greatest good. This is one of those truths that is of vital importance. One of those truths that we have to return to again and again. I remember, I remember first being introduced to this idea, at least the first time I remember being introduced to this idea, was, was reading John Piper's Desiring God when I was in high school. And it, and it revolutionized my, my understanding of the Christian life. As, as he set forth, listen, a desire for your good and a desire for God's glory are not at odds with one another. But God actually created you to find your joy in glorifying him. See, you are created in the image of a God who delights to serve the good of others. And he has made you like himself. He has made you to delight in serving others. I actually see this uh, in uh, many worldly philosophies. They're not able to execute it. They don't have the power of the Spirit, but they recognize that selfishness does not lead to happiness. Service actually is a better path to happiness than selfishness. Selfishness is self-defeating. When we make our own interests and our own desires, our own happiness, our ultimate concern, we inevitably and necessarily cut ourselves off from the very thing that we have set our heart upon. But when we are willing to lose our lives in the service of others, Jesus says it's then and there that we find true life. Because we have been created in the image of a God who loves in just that way. A God who, what did John say? Who showed us what love is by not sparing his son, but giving him as the sacrifice for our sins. So this is the test. This is the, the test that, that John is giving us, uh, this test of love. And so apply it to yourself. Ask yourself, is God working such love in me? Do I see such love in my life? Has he inclined my heart towards the good of my neighbor such that I am willing to, to bend my life towards their good? Such that I'm not asking about the minimum requirement. I'm not asking if it only has to be dad clean. I'm asking, what can I do to be a blessing to my neighbor? Does such love mark your obedience? If not, if if your love for neighbor is is more focused on the minimum requirement, (laughs) the minimum you have to do to to be counted worthy, then John is saying that you do not have any real reason for assurance. If love for neighbor is is not something that God is working in your heart, then then you need to go to him again and to ask him to to grant to you repentance unto life, to to cleanse your heart, to to give you a heart of flesh, to to know him and to to love him and to walk in his ways. But what I want you to hear me say this morning is that if that is true of you, and it is true of so many of you, then you have reason to know that you have eternal life in the Son. 
Again, remember, remember what we said last Sunday. None of us, none of us meets these tests perfectly. That's not what John is getting at. But so many of us meet these tests sincerely. I've seen it in you. I've seen it in this body. I've seen it in the ways that you love one another, in the ways that you express concern for one another, in the ways that you come alongside one another. You are a picture of, of Christian love as you, you take up one another's burdens and, and seek to, to serve. And not only do you, do you love one another, but you love our community well. As you seek to, to bring good to those who, who are, are, are marginalized and, and on the outside in our own community. And I want you to hear me say that that love, that love that God is working in you, that is evidence of your saving faith. God did that. It is God who caused your love to abound. It is God who gave you that concern for one another. It is God who gave you that, that love for uh, those in your community who you don't even know. And if God is doing that good work in you, if he is producing that love in you, again, not, not a love that expresses itself perfectly, but a love that, that expresses itself truly and, and sincerely, a love that I have seen on display, then you can know, then you can know that God is at work. And if he is at work, he will not fail to bring to completion the work that he has begun. So let's just review quickly the, the three tests. We, we've seen all three. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that your salvation is secured by another? Do you now obey him as your Lord and Savior? And is that obedience marked by love? None of us meets these tests perfectly. But God is at work in our hearts. And because he is, we can know that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And because we can have such an assurance, rooted not in ourselves, but rooted in the work of God, a work that he has begun and a work that he will complete, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for these tests. Father, it would be so easy for us to take these tests and, and to beat ourselves up because we do not meet them perfectly. But Father, help us to see and to understand that while we do not yet meet these tests perfectly, the good work has begun, Father. You have granted us faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And you have granted us a, a, a spirit of obedience and submission to him. And you are even now causing our love for one another and for our neighbors to abound more and more to the praise of your glory. And may we see the fruit of your good work and take heart, Father. When our hearts condemn us, Father, may we listen to you instead. May we see the evidence of your work instead. And may we know that we have eternal life in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.